Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. He was called Fred C. Trump. And Fred, Fred, Fred is Frederick Christ Trump. <laughs> I mean, it's Do you know what the T in James T. Kirk stands for? Tiberius. Tiberius. Yeah. No. Oh. no. To boldly go away. <laughs> <laughs> Joke copyright Noel uh, Evans, 1979. As we're on this particularly un- unpromising, but do you know what the, Harry S, the S in Harry S. Truman stands for? Mm. No, go on. Nothing whatsoever. Really? It doesn't stand for anything. It was just his parents it's couldn't agree. good. Uh, well, they we, we, had to have a middle initial. So, but, so they just left it as a, they compromised and just left it as an initial S. There were two oh. rival S names. Totally. Now I'm going to laugh every time I hear <laughs> the name Harry. No, S. you're not. You're not calling him Sigmund. <laughs> <laughs> but Marquis Smith. Yeah, so uh, we're very sad. You've seen, you've seen The Fall, Andy, more times than I think any other I've band. probably said, well, we've talked about The Fall quite a lot on Backlisted over the last couple of years, and the reason is because I really love, loved, love The Fall. And so um, I saw a friend of mine for lunch today who's a big Fall fan, and we were saying that unlike, uh, say, David Bowie's death, which also was a, a very sad thing, with Bowie, you maybe felt that those last couple of records that he put out after a break were almost. Um, Bonuses that you, everyone sort of understood that he was nearer to the end, but in Mark Smith's case, he'd been producing a full album a year since, since 1978. Yeah, since I was 15, and uh, he'd been playing shows all the time since 1978, and the, and he existed to go out there and do it until he couldn't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And as a as a kind of example of a ornery creative, ruthlessly moving forward, <laughs> sacking people as he went. Sacking uh, and slapping. And, you know, he, he was, a, he's a, he was a, 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 I don't want to say a great man, but he was a fascinating figure. And, and I, can un- I, I, understand, I totally understand that, um, you know, the full are an acquired taste. Like cigarettes, but, uh, but they are <laughs> but like cig smoked here. You know, they are they are worth acquiring. Well, well the, the, the criticism gets levelled at them, which seems to me to be a sort of pointless criticism, which is that they oh, it all sounds exactly the same, and he's 
released the same album over and over again. There's an element, I guess there's an element of truth in that, you know, guitar riffs. But I don't believe, I, I, wallowing it as you do when yeah. somebody dies in the, in the back catalogue over the past few nights, I think, he, I, think, I, think he, I don't think there is a better songwriter ever. I'd put him right up there with Dylan, I would. I think, he's I, ge- I, I think he's an absolute genius. And I, the funny thing is, you, you course when you do, you listen to things that you think I never, you know, there's a pe- period, particularly, I, I suppose the last fifteen years, where I haven't been as attentive to the fall as I would have been when I was younger. And you go back, and there's some brilliant, brilliant stuff. I was the unutterable I was listening to, which is yeah, I, you were listening to Doctor Buck's letter. Right? It's an amazing just, record. Yeah. I was in the realm of I, the essence of Tom. <laughs> I was in the realm of the essence of Tonga. He, he, he was the template for, you know, credibility. Do, don't never give in. Never, you know, never compromise hey, with the man. I know listeners want to get us to get on and talk about books, but we're not going to do it. We're not. I'm not doing it. I'm going to tell you some more stories about Marky Smith. Chris and I are just being yeah, just, so no, sorry. Get, no, I okay. need to get this. So, so like John was saying a moment ago, that the four, like you know, they, they repeated themselves. That first, the first thing to say is I one of the first. One about. of the first four records is called Repetition. Yeah. Rep, the three R's. Yeah. Repetition, repetition, yeah. repetition. That's the first thing. The second thing is there's an early four live album called Total's Turns where a member of the audience heckles Marky Smith and they ask for like Bingo Master's breakout or something and, and he goes to the bloke were you still doing what you did two years ago you were well don't make a career out of it <laughs> right that, that you won't understand take your voice yeah, your written voice your singing voice your you. lack of singing voice and find a new setting for it even if that means sacking your group and employing a new group you know, I met Marky Smith a few times. The first time I met him was at Dave Haslam's wedding, which is about 20 years ago. And Dave Haslam was a friend of Mark's. And he said, Can't Andy, come and meet Mark. I was absolutely terrified. <laughs> right, so I go up and he goes, he go, Dave goes, uh, so Mark, this is my editor, he's called Andy Miller. And Mark looks at me and he goes, yeah, you are, you're Greek or are you Roman? And I went, <laughs> I don't know. That was like, that was the, the, that interaction. Brilliant. But then I, I, um, I Mark E. Smith uh, published his um, extremely ghosted uh, autobiography, <laughs> Renegade, about 10 years ago. And I can now reveal uh, this that I was employed on the choir by the editor at Penguin as. The fact checker of that one. <laughs> and uh, it did involve often moving entire decades around, which had been put in the wrong place. But, but also, I got the legal read. Uh, the legal read is one of the funniest yeah, documents, which I, I'm uh, sorry, listeners, if you if you I'm not allowed to circulate it. But you can imagine when Mr. Smith says <laughs> that he took speed non-stop from the years 1978 <laughs> to 1998, will he be able to prove it? <laughs> Uh, Shall we start? Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books by Unbound, the website which brings authors and readers together to create something special. You find us hunkered down in the Rebel Motel on the outskirts of Chicago, just the kind of place where the cleaners spit their gum into the shower stall. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound. 
And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us today are author and critic Chris Power. Hello, Chris. Hello. Uh, Chris writes regularly for The Guardian and The New Statesman. Great things are expected of his debut short story collection, Mothers, which John Mitchinson has read and has been raving about on this podcast. In fact, raved about it on the last episode. And that's published by Fabian February, is that right? First of March. First of March. Okay, so by the time you hear this, you're only weeks away from... Uh, Chris's debut story collection, Mothers. Alternatively, if you're listening to this at any point after March 2018, Mothers was a worldwide hit on publication <laughs> and has swept the boards at every award ceremony going, including it won Best Album of the Year at the Grammys. That was a surprise, Chris, wasn't it? The Perrier Award Best New Stand-Up in Edinburgh and the Nobel Prize for Science. Not bad for a debut collection of stories, Chris. Well done. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Still pinching myself. Yeah. <laughs> And making a welcome return to the show is Erica Wagner. Right. Erica is a writer and critic whose most recent book is a biography of Washington Robling, the engineer who constructed the Brooklyn Bridge. Previous to that, she edited the collection First Light, a celebration of the life and work of Alan Garner, published by Unbound. And I, too, have read Chris's debut collection of stories. Excellent. And can vouch for it as one of the best things I've read in a long time. Oh, yeah. Oh, thank you very much. Um, well, that's good, because we're here to talk about a collection of stories, Jesus' Son by American writer Dennis Johnson. Anyway, Andy, we start, as usual, with asking the question, what have you been reading? This week? This week, yes. Well, it, it's not, truthfully, it wasn't this week. It was just before Christmas. But uh, I wanted to talk about it because uh, I devoted... Uh, it took me a good ten days, I think, to read it. I read a book called Jonathan Strange and Mr Norrell by Susanna Clarke. And I'm confident that's less of a backlisted title than a front-listed title, really. Still, I'm in no doubt it still sells many copies every year. When was it published? About 2004? Something yeah, like and was a huge bestseller. And um, in retrospect, perhaps catching a wave from the J.K. Rowling, Philip Pullman, adults wanting to read big pseudo-historical fiction about magic... That's a guess. That's, a re- that's going back and analysing the reading trends. But also, what I liked about it, I thought it was great, flawed, but great, and the good things far outweighed the, the flaws in it. It's sort of a work of both historical imagination and imaginative history. If you haven't read it, it's set just pre-Regency, so it's set between sort of 1810 and 1820. I'll just read you the opening sentences of the book, because actually they give you a really good feel for it. It starts, The Library at Hertfew, Autumn 1806 to January 1807. Some years ago, there was in the city of York a society of magicians. They met upon the third Wednesday of every month and read each other long, dull papers upon the history of English magic. They were gentlemen magicians, which is to say they had never harmed anyone by magic, nor ever done anyone the slightest good. In fact, to own the truth, not one of these magicians had ever cast the smallest spell, nor by magic caused one leaf to tremble upon a tree, made one mote of dust to alter its course, or changed a single hair upon anyone's head. But, with this one minor reservation, they enjoyed a reputation as some of the wisest and most magical gentlemen in Yorkshire. (laughs) A great magician has said of his profession that his practitioners, quote, must pound and rack their brains to make the least learning go in, but quarrelling away comes very naturally to them. Footnote, the life of 
Jonathan Strange, <laughs> published John Murray, 1816. And the York magicians had proved the truth of this for a number of years. So what you're in is a world which is a sort of delightful literary recreation of a particular period of history with one small addition, which is that magic is real and exists. How would magic be practised? How would it be perpetrated? To what uses would it be put had it existed in that pre-Regency period? And it also features appearances from real figures from history. So Lord Byron is a character in the novel. Uh, The Battle of Waterloo takes place. Mm. Jonathan Strange encounters George III, who is in fact not mad but can see magical creatures, (laughs) and so on and so forth. And it's very witty and it's very erudite and it manages to pull in various literary templates and have fun with those and so it's full of good stuff and yet and yet and I'm able to say this because it's a huge best-selling book which many many people love and have enjoyed it doesn't quite pay off (laughs) and it made me think about reading big books like this or like Infinite Jest where when you go to the trouble of spending a long time reading a thousand page novel the temptation when you finish it is to say either it was incredible or, oh, it was rubbish. Whereas, in fact, a, a really long book, just like a book of any other length, can sometimes be sort of seven. <laughs> it can be all right. I really enjoyed reading it. The world-building element of it is terrific, and yet it, it sort of falters in the delivery of the denouement and the plot at the end, and yet it didn't matter. I sort of felt by the end of it that I would like to spend more time in the world that she built. And in fact, her volume of short stories are stories, aren't they? From the And indeed, she wrote, I think I'm right in saying she wrote it piecemeal. So lots of, the, lots of the chapters on it were published as stories. And there was then a retrospective um, bid to rewrite and create a, a novel. So you can kind of see why the narrative falters a little. But have, you, have the people gathered around the table read it? Matt's read it. I have read it, but when it came out, and not since. Yeah. Did you enjoy it, Erica? Did you find it? I know, it's not hard to put... Yeah. Um, You know, it made me think of... It's interesting what you say about that payoff of a big book and how maybe we expect Mm. a different kind of payoff to get into a world in another way and although it's not a magical book and maybe I'm thinking this because I've just read his new novel that denouement what you were saying made me think of the ending of Oscar and Lucinda mm, okay. okay and when you, yeah. when you come it, to the end of a novel that's been building and building and it it really happens but also like I always bracketed it with kind of the quincunx Charles Palace yes. book it felt a little bit that the week. chemical wedding and the ke- just what I was going to but also, it's and weird. Which I, book to, I really, it's, I really love. It's that weird book. to talk about it in like five minutes at the beginning of this because it's such a big book. Yes. Uh, you know, Chris, you were saying to me that you had, yeah, I had it. Uh, I had it biked to me. It was very dramatic because uh, a <laughs> uh, BBC website that I was writing for at the time had to have. That's the big deal. Had to have when my, they bike it to my you. expansive review, which was capped at 120 words. <laughs> 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 For a, what, 850 yeah. pages? Yeah, it, it is, like yeah, yeah. Um, Five of which were the title. <laughs> yeah. And I, my memory isn't great, but I do remember 
really liking the atmosphere of it. So I think it chimes what you say yeah, about yeah, yeah. spending time in that People world. People loved it. I mean, I, I, didn't yes, see, did. I didn't see the adaptation. When you read one of these big, big books, and Infinite Jest is a brilliant case of this, it seems to do, both the book itself and its place in the culture seem to demand that you have a strong response, mm. that you say, oh, this was an incredible... It's a masterpiece, the best novel of the 1990s. Well, it's, it's or isn't it? you, you have, say, you oh, to... I hated it. People who, people who say they like yeah. this, they're, they're having a laugh. You know? Whereas, you know, Infinite Jest is, a, is you know, too but long and full of brilliant the, stuff. The fact and that so, you've invested so much time in it. You kinda, it's a great you kinda, book, but... It's, you can't you know, sort of invest that much time in something and just go, mm, that's all right. Yeah, people feel you know. It's As sort of any it. viewer of the Man in the High Castle can attest, that <laughs> 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 so we start with such. Have you watched it? No. I, I, if you're going to start talking television, I'm just going to talk about detectorists and, until you stop. No, <laughs> and that would be fine. That would be fine. The last my summer new, wine, my new passion. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> um, so. John, what, that's anyway. We've dealt well, there with that, with that thousand-page novel. What have you been reading this week? Have anything sort of more uh, d- different? It's a, a debut collection of stories by Daisy Johnson called Fen. Um, I have a bit of a, as you know, a bit of a soft spot for people who write about stories in locations, rural locations. I'm sort of interested in, in in that genre, and it's a brilliant first collection. Again, I think it's always difficult. It's probably always been people writing good short stories, but I just feel at the moment we seem to be living through every new collection. I mean, I'm thinking there's, there are connections here, with, particularly with Sarah Hall. I think there are at least two stories where people transform into animals, and I'll read you a little bit from one of them. But also the wonderful Jesse Greengrass, who I was talking mm-hmm. about last week. just seems, um, Chris, who's here, I mean, I just think it's a... Sort of, I don't know why, but short stories are seeming to work again in a way that they have. It might be me, it might not be the stories. But this is 12 stories, they're all about women, they're all set in the fens, but the real fens, as opposed to what you might call the Graham Swift fens, although Swift's, I mean, I love that book, and mm. there's definitely, but you know, the fens are a bit of a, they're a good place to set, set stories, <laughs> flat, weird, <laughs> and indeed there's a lot of weirdness. It's, a bit, it's also kind of irrigated by kind of folk horror, folklore. She tells the stories. There's a, a woman who gets letters from her husband who's on a fishing trawler who's obsessed with the fact that there's an albatross that keeps looking at him and the albatross ends up to come and take her baby, appears in the kitchen in this sort of... It's, it's off-licenses. There's a pub that's the common theme to all, to all the stories. Mm. So, it's, again, it has that slight feeling we'll talk about this more later, of, of being a linked collection, different yeah. kind of kaleidoscopic attempts to sort of get to the truth of a community. When was this? This is like... Last year. Right. So, so first collection, she's writing, obviously, a novel, Jonathan Cape, so you always kind of think, well, you know, probably worth picking up. But I, I, it was much less naturey. In the, side, in the way that I know you don't much like. Hey, I'm happy to swim against the tide. I believe you'll like that um, metaphor, right? It's, it's uh, you know, it's, 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 it's Angela Carter in, in, in lots of ways. You've got that sense of... I mean, it's, she writes really, really well. I mean, there are a few things that don't quite come off. One of the things, I think, reading it, you start to lose, which, again, when we come on to Johnson, might not be a problem. The characters leak into one another. Yeah. But then it is a very... It, yeah. The book is a fluid. It's all about bodily fluids and liquids and, and shape-shifting and changes. But I'll read you this little... The, from the first story, which is called Starved, which starts off, I mean, again, really snappy, brilliantly kind of realised teenage girl who stops eating. 
So you think you know that the story's going to go down one route, and the parents are obviously worried, the sister and the sister narrating the story. But I'll read you the last page of the story. She rolled out of bed, flopped her way down the corridor, on her belly, searching for something. I followed her at a distance. They took to tying her to the bed, straps around her middle, her forehead, her ankles. She ignored our parents, looked blindly for me. I knew what she was asking. They knew there was nothing they could do for her. We took her home. A nurse would come every day to feed and clean her. Katie locked herself in the bathroom and would not come out. Sitting on the floor by the door, I heard the sound of her in the bath, the water sloshing out, the slap of flesh on plastic, the sound of the shampoo and conditioner bottles falling to the floor. When Mum broke down the door, we stood and looked at her, but only I would stay, sat on the floor, patting messages through the surface of the water, pushing her under so she could breathe. The ambulance is on its way, Mum shouted up the stairs. Katie rolled her head to look at me, moving her long body in the water. I wet a towel, lifted her free, carried her out through the back garden, under the hedge and into the field. Her face next to mine, the thrash of her excited stomach against my side, the flapping of gills shuttering on the side of her neck. I carried her as far as the school field, paused at the stile to rest. The canal ran deep there, was mired over with weeds and nettles. I lay her on the ground, jerked her free from the towel, pushed her sideways into the water. She did not roll her white belly to message me goodbye or send a final ripple, only ducked deep and was gone. That's pretty good. But do you know what she's writing at the moment? Novel. Yeah, it's coming out this year, I think. I think it is, yeah. I mean, I'd, she'd, I'd be fascinated to read whatever she does. But no, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, as I say, it's, it it's, is, it's that's great. It's really interesting, the short story yeah. phenomenon. If indeed it is a phenomenon well, at the moment. You know, it's one of those things. Is, were they always there, but we just weren't looking? Or, you know, it's, it's, it, but it's certainly... Maybe it's just that publishers have found a way through the usual crap and decided that stories are... Actually, you can if with... I mean, given, as we know, the background of, to, of all this is that literary fiction... The amazing revelation from the Arts Council that literary fiction doesn't sell very much. Oh, don't, don't, please don't. Please don't. I had to mute I mean, the words literary as, fiction as, as on my, Twitter this week. As, as, as a publisher of literary fiction, I was, oh. I was shocked and amazed to discover this. But um, anyway, oh. we're here to talk about short stories because we've got a, a magnificent practitioner of the, of the form right here. And, um, and right here, actually. <laughs> Are you <laughs> saying both Chris <laughs> and Erica are magnificent am. practitioners of the short story? Right. Dueling magnificence. We'll be back in just a sec. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? 
Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. And in front of us is perhaps, although shamefully I hadn't uh, read it and you hadn't read it, but we now see one of the most influential collections of, of short stories written in the past 20 years. Which well, is... I, I, I'll tell you, I, you say I hadn't read it, but you had as it. you can see, I, I owned it, bought this when it came Pre-loved. out. Pre-loved. Uh, no, no, I bought it when it came out. This is the first edition, hardback, published by Faber and Faber. I read the first story in it in 1993 or two. I was 92 and thought, no, I don't like that. <laughs> and then that was it until uh, three weeks ago. But that's not a response that many people will have had. Because <laughs> we know that this get, was such a popular book. It didn't get great reviews, Andy. I look back. Didn't it? It didn't get great reviews. I no. remember it got great reviews. Maybe that's... It did in the United States. States. Maybe in the United States. It got a few sniffy ones here. So, yes. So we're talking about Jesus' Son by Dennis Johnson. Title taken from the lyrics of Heroin by The Velvet Underground, written by Lou Reed. Which is why we're calling it Jesus' Son and not Jesus' Son. Because uh, it's, it, uh, the epigraph of the book is, makes it clear that that's where it takes its title from. Chris, you contacted me to say, are you planning to do an episode on Dennis Johnson? If you are, or if you aren't, <laughs> please can I come on and talk about him? So where and when were you? When did you first encounter this book? Well, I first encountered it fittingly for a, a book that is sort of that does deal partly with the, the haziness of, uh, of recollection and memory. Um, I can't remember exactly how I had, uh, let's see, fourteen ninety nine to spare in <laughs> 1993, but it was a Waterstones in Guildford. I've since I've talked to Faber. I know that so it was published in 92 in the States. It was in summer 93. It was June 93 that it came out in the in the UK, and um, I didn't have a lot of disposable income that didn't go on. Um, Can I ask how old you were? I was, uh, I was 18, oh, okay. and I was spending my money um, on various recreational things, but not for <laughs> <laughs> very much. But... What does that mean? <laughs> the police don't listen <laughs> What's the statute of limitations? <laughs> Guildford, Guildford, Guildford Rotary Club won't be pleased to hear <laughs> this. They, they yeah, are. They are. Go on, um, please so if you tune into a Dennis Johnson podcast <laughs> and expect none of the people who are talking about the books never taking drugs of any kind... Also, I'm already thinking our American listeners will be delighted at the mention of the Guildford Rotary Club. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, anyway, Chris, go on. Noted. As soon as I saw Jesus' son, I thought of heroin, which, was, I was, which wasn't what I was spending my money on, but the song was... I was listening to it, like, daily at, yeah. that, at that point, and... Um, I was also a, a fairly freshly minted uh, atheist. I was raised Catholic, and uh, the book's okay. got a Sacred Heart Jesus on it, which um, kind of chimed with me. I think I'd just, for the last sort of year or so, I'd just been able to start saying I was an atheist without crouching and waiting to be uh, smitten. Down. Smitten. <laughs> Smoted, smitten <laughs> by a thunderbolt. Um, and it's got a kind of cut out on the cover of a, of a, of a drug capsule. So it, it just kind of impelled me to, uh, mm. to pick it up. And when I did, I was just 
astonished. I think astonishment's a kind of very appropriate word with Johnson because often his characters are kind of astonished by the world in, in various ways, good and bad. And I was just astonished by the, the language, the control of it, the weird sliding time frame of it, the humour and the tension. And I've got a question. I'm mm. fascinated by this. So you're 18 and you're in Guildford and you walk into Waterstones in Guildford and you see this book, Jesus, so you say, mm. I'm going to buy that. Wouldn't happen today. What else were you... But what else were you reading when you were 18? Who were your favourite... I mean, so I'm putting you on the spot, but can you remember who your favourite writers were? Yeah, well, were? I, was, I was only reading American writers, so I'd sort of gone through um, the beats, which kind of feed into... I mean, Johnson was, was cited and influenced from the beats, but I'd read Kerouac, I'd read Burroughs. Earlier that summer, in Lanzarote, which is a whole different story that I won't go into, I discovered... <laughs> not him in his physical form, but I discovered Donald Bartholomew. Not, like, on a beach in Lanzarote, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> And then my troubles began. (laughs) Yeah, so I'd been I'd been reading him pretty solidly. I'd been reading forty stories and was just going on to uh, sixty stories. But I was ready. I was ready. Oh yeah, I I think so. Good. Just checking. Just checking. checking. So you were already tuned into a kind of American literary sensibility when you Mm, found this. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Do you want to read us something to give us a taste? Straight away, yeah, so that definitely. so that people who who haven't read Dennis Johnson before can can get straight to it. Yeah, because it's such a particular voice in this book that before we talk about it, we ought to hear it. Really, it is. Yeah, and I think uh, I'm going to read the end of uh, the first story, which is called "Car Crash While Hitchhiking," and um, I think it kind of speaks to how it how it pulls you in because it's so. Um, Strange, and it probably took me a few years to even have a stab at, at what was going on in this oh, in this I'm mindset so that, we're, uh, <laughs> that we're exploring. But so the the narrator, who um, parental advisory, is only known as fuckhead in the book. Yeah. So that's the only name we hear him given. It's not by his choice, but uh, that is the name he's got, deservedly so. He's been involved in a car crash. He's been hitchhiking all day. There's been a car crash, and his family are in various states of. Uh, woundedness and maimedness and uh, he's now at the hospital where they've been where they've been brought in to be treated down the hall came the wife she was glorious burning she didn't know yet that her husband was dead i should say fuckhead as he's detailed at the start of the story has been taking drugs all day and drinking all day with the various people who've uh, picked him up on his journey she didn't know yet that her husband was dead we knew that's what gave her such power over us The doctor took her into a room with a desk at the end of the hall, and from under the closed door a slab of brilliance radiated as if, by some stupendous process, diamonds were being incinerated in there. What a pair of lungs! She shrieked as I imagined an eagle would shriek. It felt wonderful to be alive to hear it. I've gone looking for that feeling everywhere. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm surprised I let those words out, but it's always been my tendency to lie to doctors as if good health consisted only of the ability to fool them. Some years later, one time when I was admitted to the detox at Seattle General Hospital, I took the same tack. Are you hearing unusual sounds or voices? The doctor asked. Help us, oh God, it hurts, the boxes of cotton screamed. Not exactly, I said. Not exactly, he said. Now what does that mean? I'm not ready to go into all that, I said. A yellow bird fluttered close to my face and my muscles grabbed. Now I was flopping like a fish. When I squeezed shut my eyes, hot tears exploded from the sockets. When I opened them, I was on my stomach. 
How did the room get so white? I asked. A beautiful nurse was touching my skin. These are vitamins, she said, and drove the needle in. It was raining. Gigantic ferns leaned over us. The forest drifted down a hill. I could hear a creek rushing down among rocks. And you, you ridiculous people, you expect me to help you. Okay, Chris, what's going to happen is you're coming to my house <laughs> and you're going to read me that, the book. That's yeah, tremendous. Really good. Erica, I thought you had read this before. You hadn't read this before. No, I too am a novice. Although I was always very aware, you know, that, that game of humiliation, the people that the books you should have read, <laughs> and I knew that this was one of them. And finally reading it, I suppose... To me, it's interesting when you think a book is like something else, but then you think perhaps that something else is like the book. So I was reading this and thinking about Joy Williams, and I was thinking about George Saunders, too, in a, in a strange way. The thing that fascinated me, and I was struck by it very much listening to Chris read so beautifully just then, and... I'd need to read the book again and again, I think, to really get a handle on it. But one of the things that's most mysterious and captivating about it is the way that he uses time. And that, I think, is what gives the reader the sensation of being in the strange world Mm. of fuckhead. And even that, when you were reading it, thinking about that flash forward, that years later, Mm -hmm. which makes me think of the story set in the hospital... at the end of the collection, there's this incredibly fluid sense of disorienting movement through the book that is incredibly arresting and unsettling. And I think about your initial response of reading this and thinking, whoop, I don't like this. It's trying to make the effect in you of what's happening, I think, to the body and mind of fuckhead I, in I, the collection. I, I would like to say in my defence that I was 25 and an idiot. So, no, but, so, I, you but know, I actually... I, no, 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 but, but I think, I think, you know, and I always say when I'm talking to my students, you know, I think the stuff, I think it's a good response, it's an interesting response not to like something yeah. because it's doing something well I'd like to I'd just like to say a little bit about my experience of reading the book this time so I ha- I'd had the book I'd tried to read the opening story when I was 25 just didn't get on with it and so I put it on the shelf like so lots of things and you know so when I knew we were going to be doing it for this I thought okay great I'm going to love this I'm, I'm 49 now, now I'm time's running out let's, let's go let's go and I read it, I read it about three or four weeks ago, and I didn't get it. And I thought, okay, and I was quite disappointed. Not, not, I was, you know, not with Dennis Johnson, with the late Dennis Johnson, <laughs> but with myself. I, I let myself down, right? So then I do what I always do for Batlister, which is I, I read, down. I let myself <laughs> down, yeah, yeah, always. I'm always, you know. And I read another, I read another of his novels, I read another of his books, I read his 620 Ooh, page. That's, that's brave. 2007 National Book Award winning novel tree of smoke and the first 400 pages i was thinking okay this is fine it's sort of nothing like yeah. jesus son nothing like could be a different writer and then the last 200 pages were incredible that was, that was my moment and then i read a little 100 page novella 
in a, in a morning called Train Dreams, and that is sensationally good. And then I read Jesus' Son again, and the second reading on Jesus' Son, having almost learnt to trust Dennis Johnson, I got so much more out of it. I, I really radically changed how I felt about the reading of it. And the thing that I'd like to say about Johnson before I hand over to you, um, John, is that, and this is such a good lesson to learn from where, why we do this podcast, is that each of those books, a book of short stories, a novella, and an epic novel, they are all remarkably different from one another. Not so much in style, though they are different in style, but in the narrative discipline required for each book. And in three different cases, three different ways of storytelling, the writer is completely in command of what he's mm. doing. So the, the, what you need to be able to create an epic novel is not what you need to be able to create a book like Jesus' Son. And yet he's totally on top of... It seemed to me totally on top of both of them. So coming back to Jesus' son with a sense of... I think I thought on first reading, OK, Dennis, this, is a, this is a Bukowski, this is, a kind of, this is one of those guys. I've, you know, I've seen it, I've done it. Uh. Coming back to it, having seen the control over it and thinking, OK, he's, choo- he's choosing very specifically mm-hmm. to say what he wants to say in this way. It really blew me away. Um, I hadn't read it before. I hadn't read any Johnson. I had a, the dimmest notion that Johnson was important. You know, that kind of important. Probably ought to read him. Uh, that he's one of the writers who's kind of saddled with the terrible epithet cult, which oh, is writer's writer. Even worse. Jeffrey Genovese called him a writer's writer's writer. Oh, oh, so awful. I have to say, but, I'm so sorry. I, I, a cult I, with no members. <laughs> what somebody said. I'm speaking of, of cult and that. I feel the need to interrupt and say I must say that this um, edition I feel has the least attractive. What on earth is it? But also this. But this quote. The cover. But yeah. the cover is terrible. Yeah. And also this quote from Jonathan Franzen is the least enticing. Blurb. Is that the one about I rhythm? Think, no, no, it's, the it's, one that it's saying about God. The voice had a God, mm. and then oh. with that Janice Johnson's. But mm. fuckhead. Maybe the title, Jesus Son. I mean, it seems that he's clearly not God. Although the, I just thought this was one. I, I, for me, it was. It was. I'd often wondered: is how does the American short story bridge the Carver, George Saunders gap? Because they, you know, it's it's such a it's such a great form in America. And and funnily enough, what my way into this book was having read. Chris's excellent collection, Mothers, over Christmas, and thinking a lot about why don't more people do, you know, link stories and have, you know, it's been, it's not, it has been done before. But I think this book, Jesus' Son, is, and Chris does do that, there, is, there are three stories, uh, Mother 1, 2, 3, in your, in your collection, which, um, and the other stories in it, which was a way in for me understanding, the other stories in it seem to me to be kind of, again, uh, that the, the, the story arc of the book, there were kind of individual, the individual stories were not concerning the actual characters, were emotionally kind of resonant. And I feel that with, with Johnson, that's what you get. You get, fuckhead is, is not reliable. That's the first thing. Really? He goes around, he goes around in time. I mean, he's addled on drugs. But you realise that, 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 that Johnson kind of is reliable. What Johnson yeah. is doing is, is so, it's so clever and so precise and he has that ability to turn in, a, in an instant something 
you know, it's like a complete. You suddenly find yourself and you've gone through into a, a totally different dimension. I want to read just one amazing little passage in the middle of one. I mean, I, I just if I haven't said that I love this collection and I feel I will be reading it for the rest of my life and rereading it for the rest of my life, I should do because I, I it was it's I connected with it in a way that and I've been reading as you know a lot of short stories of late. In the middle of this story, when he's gone, he and his friend Wayne have gone back to his house and they've pulled out all the copper wire so they can sell it and they go to this bar called um, the, the Vine and there's a kind of a, there's apparently almost going to be a fight and then there isn't a fight Wayne somehow manages the guy who he, he's picking on Big Black he manages to defuse it um, he says and then he says and then came one of those moments I remember living through one when I was 18 and spending the afternoon in bed with my first wife before we were married our naked bodies started glowing and the air turned such a strange colour, I thought my life must be leaving me. And with every young fibre and cell, I wanted to hold on to it for another breath. A clattering sound was tearing up my head as I staggered upright and opened the door on a vision I will never see again. Where are my women now, with their sweet, wet words and ways, and the miraculous balls of hail popping in a green translucence in the yards? We put on our clothes, she and I, and walked out into a town flooded ankle-deep with white, buoyant stones. Birth should have been like that. Mm. <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> I mean, in the middle of it, it's, it's that moment, and then suddenly, it's like all the way through the book, you're having to go back and reread other story, earlier stories. You, you don't understand any of these stories on the first time round. You just don't. And, it's, mm. and it feels it, it's odd because, although it, you know, I think that's possibly your, your problem. You have to read all the way through and come back and, and move around and. You realise that what Johnson's doing is it is kaleidoscopic, but there, there is a kind of a. I mean, the, the brilliant story with the emergency, which we might read. In the, well, yeah, there's a story in the in the famous story. emergency about a guy who's brought into a hospital with a, a knife in his eye, <laughs> and uh, John and I. Well, we'll come on to this in a minute, but John, because I want to ask Chris something. But John and I both watched the. Um, <laughs> film that was unbelievably that was made of this book <laughs> I mean, in 1999 <laughs> and the guy with the knife in his eye is, is Dennis Johnson uh-huh. uh, but it, you uh, and that's one reason to watch everything, it <laughs> everything that is brilliant about this collection is how on film but it is because yeah. I mean the film isn't bad it just isn't very good so this had a big impact on you when you were 18 did it have an impact on you as a writer as a writer of short stories or in your prose or what yeah I, th- I think it had a sort of uh, a deleterious impact for a while because uh, <laughs> you really don't want to try and emulate someone like Dennis Johnson because he's just too good I mentioned to John just before Johnson was a big fan of uh, Malcolm Lowry and he mm. used to say that he'd go away and read Lowry and then go well there's that's, that's no uh, point there's no one mm. I can't compete with that mm. so um he said when he'd get frustrated with Lowry reading... felt that as well. Yeah, <laughs> he did. <laughs> he did. Um, but, yeah, I was, I was definitely influenced. Unfortunately, I was influenced by Donald Bartholomew at the same time. And you don't want to... <laughs> if you don't want to be influenced by Dennis Johnson, you don't, definitely don't want to be influenced by Donald Bartholomew and Dennis Johnson at the same time because <laughs> you're just going to get pulled apart by the writing gods. But as you've got older, what I'm interested in is it mm. seems to me that there is something in here, the, the extract you just read, which has that brilliant kiss-off at the end mm. of, the, of the chapter, which would be very appealing to a young reader to an adolescent. Yeah. We were talking about, as John was saying, about the control that Johnson shows. Mm. As you, you know, as you've got older and you've written more, is it the, the control over the prose which, is, which works for you? 
I think it is. Well, it's 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 a couple of things. I mean, first of all, he's incredibly. He's got an incredible. Ta- I mean, he started as a poet. He published his first collection of poetry. I think when he was nineteen. And then kind of went off the rails a bit in his 20s. But it did very well, didn't it? That it did do well. He was, was quite fated. He was yeah. at Iowa. He was taught by Raymond Carver at mm. Iowa um, and later taught there himself. But throughout the sort of late 60s, early 70s, he did have this kind of... He was a junkie. He was a drinker. And you only get it in spots because he didn't give many interviews. So you get spots of sort of memoir here and there. Like he wrote a little piece for The New Yorker called Homeless and High about being homeless in San Francisco in the early 70s, always saying, look, I was middle class, I could get out of it when I wanted to, I could go to detox, whatever, other people didn't have that that option. Talking about him as a poet, he has this incredible gift for simile and metaphor that just kind of leap out at you, like these these green balls of hail or these um, mm, yeah. stuff at the st- when I started reading I didn't even know if it was if it was good or not like the, the, <laughs> the clouds being like great grey brains and I yeah, was like yeah, I yeah, remember yeah. reading that and going is that good or bad I think it's <laughs> I think it's amazing now but at the time I was like I don't know if this I, is even good or not we've got a clip now of um, this is from a, a lecture that um, Dennis Johnson gave at Cornell in 2016 hmm. and I want to we've got two extracts from this lecture to play and the first one I want to play is that one of the things that I really like about Jones, he strikes me as a writer who would go with what worked. So a lot of the time he's looking for mm. what, what's going to work. So, so let's just hear that now. And the, the title for this, if I ever finish it, uh, is Triumph Over the Grave. I don't know what that has to do with any of the material so far, but I like the title. And so I will fix it as we go along so that it becomes, you know, the material fits the title. I think that's what J.D. Salinger did with The Catcher in the Rye. You know, it's such a catchy, weird title. But then he has the lamest reason for, for it to be the title. Do you recall the book? Like, in the end, he start, the Holden Caulfield starts talking about sort of a vision he has about a person who catches children before they wander in the rye off a cliff and he's the catcher in the rye. I mean, it's the silliest thing, you know. But it does provide a reason for calling the book The Catcher in the Rye. And it's such a, you know, such a nice title. <coughs> anyway, Triumph Over the Grave. <laughs> that that lecture to read on YouTube is terrific. It's three That's quarters great. of an hour again, I, if you haven't. I haven't heard that. It's one, and as you say, Chris, he didn't really give many interviews or do many... Um, public appearances so so it's it's quite a precious thing mm. yeah. his, his wife used to read all his work beforehand and she she was allowed one of three categories of response <laughs> genius Shakespeare or Elvis <laughs> Elvis who is mentioned in every single Dennis Johnson book everyone did, Erica did it surprise you did this book surprise you yes it did surprise me and I thought it was a very I thought also, I thought about it being published in the 90s. And reading it now, I think it's a very prescient book. You know, I think the 90s were, my memory of them, a kind of very up time, (laughs) the end of history, you know, the Berlin Wall falling and everything, and it was all getting better. And when I read this book, I was thinking about what was going on in the United States now in all kinds of ways, not just politically, but the opioid epidemic. This portrait of a society that's fractured in every way. And it's like somebody who knew that this was 
coming. And maybe that, to mm. me, comes back to the sense of time in this book, which I also think is connected to his being a poet. I think mm. as a poet, um, you are much less tied to forward narrative. And I feel that that sense, you could call this a collection of poems as much as yeah. I think you could call it a collection of stories. And can I read a tiny yeah, thing? Because <clears throat> I wasn't going to read this, but when you were reading from Car Crash While Hitchhiking, one of the things that really struck me was the description of the crash, mm. which is so this amazing back-and-forth movement. And later, as I said, I slept in the back seat while the Oldsmobile, the family from Marshalltown, splashed along through the rain. And yet I dreamed I was looking right through my eyelids, and my pulse marked off the seconds of time. The interstate through western Missouri was, in that era, nothing more than a two-way road, most of it. When a semi-truck came toward us and passed going the other way, we were lost in a blinding spray and a warfare of noises, such as you get being towed through an automatic car wash. The wipers stood up and lay down across the windshield without much effect. I was exhausted, and after an hour I slept more deeply. I'd known all along exactly what was going to happen, but the man and wife woke me up later, denying it viciously. Oh, no, no! I was thrown against the back of their seat so hard that it broke. I commenced bouncing back and forth. A liquid which I knew right away was human blood flew around the car and rained down on my head. When it was over, I was in the back seat again, just as I had been. I rose up and looked around. Our headlights had gone out. The radiator was hissing steadily. Beyond that, I didn't hear a thing. As far as I could tell, I was the only one conscious. As my eyes adjusted, I saw that the baby was lying on its back beside me as if nothing had happened. Its eyes were open, and it was feeling its cheeks with its little hands. That's the detail. <laughs> That's the detail. That's magnificent. So, um, Chris, I'm looking. You yeah. brought with you uh, Dennis Johnson's entire backlist. Uh, you measured out your life in Dennis Johnson books. Right? Wow. So, so these yeah, your actual... Con- so you, I'm, no, this is so great, though. So in, you're 18 in 1992, and you've bought, as you've gone along, a Dennis Johnson mm. book whenever you could buy a Dennis Johnson book, and here they yeah. all are. yeah. Yeah, including the... The very last one. The very last one, which is coming out uh, next week. Well, this is a proof from Cape. Um, yeah, which is his second collection of short stories, having written one of the greatest yeah. collections of short stories I've ever read. Well, the greatest. He, um, he only published one more, um, and it was the, the final thing. And, and that triumph of the grave that he was talking about in that lecture is, is one of the stories in it, and it's, a, it's an amazing story. I mean, it's an amazing collection. I was kind of all fanboyed up, ready to be like, well, I hope it's quite good, because you know, it's his last book. He died uh, liver cancer last May. But it is a, it's an extraordinary collection. Well, this is a bit like Blue Peace, where I've asked Chris to come in and break, tell us about his hobby. Um, we've, got, we've got a clip... Of um, from the same lecture of Dennis Johnson reading mm. the opening of one of the stories in Largesse of the Largesse of the Sea Maiden. This is a story called Silences, I think, and it's a slightly longer clip, but I think people will totally hear the written voice as well as his actual voice. So 
This one, this is the first one, and it's called Silences. After dinner, nobody went home right away. I think we'd enjoyed the meal so much, we hoped Elaine would serve us the whole thing all over again. These were people we've gotten to know a little from Elaine's volunteer work. Nobody from my work, nobody from the ad agency. We sat around in the living room describing the loudest sounds we'd ever heard. One said it was his wife's voice when she told him she didn't love him anymore and wanted a divorce. Another recalled the pounding of his heart when he suffered a coronary. Tia Jones had become a grandmother at the age of 37 and hoped never again to hear anything so loud as her granddaughter crying in her 16-year-old daughter's arms. Her husband, Ralph, said it hurt his ears whenever his brother opened his mouth in public. Because his brother had Tourette's syndrome, interrupted with remarks like, I masturbate, your penis smells good, in front of perfect strangers on a bus or during a movie or even in church. Young Chris Case reversed the direction and introduced the topic of silences. He said the most silent thing he'd ever heard was the landmine taking off his right leg outside Kabul, Afghanistan. As for other silences, nobody contributed. In fact, there came a silence now. Some of us hadn't realized that Chris had lost a leg. I didn't even know he'd fought in Afghanistan. A landmine, I said. Yes, sir, a landmine. Can we see it, Deirdre said. No, ma'am, Chris said. I don't carry landmines around on my person. <laughs> no, I mean your leg. It was blown off. <laughs> I mean the part that's still there. I'll show you, he said, if you kiss it. I mean, oh. <laughs> that's oh. the voice, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's extraordinary. And um, so what I'm interested in is, was there another one of his books that at a later point in your life you thought, wow, this is another incredible book, but it's different to what he's done before? Yeah, I mean, they're all different. There's, there's one story in, in the new book that, although he's got a different name. I think it is Fuckhead from Jesus' Son. It sort of ties in with Dun Dun, one of the characters who's in Jesus' Son. But each of the books, like you say, I mean, Tree of Smoke stars at noon, this book, sort of Graham Greenish book in in Nicaragua. I mean, Mm. his books do sort of fall into two sides. You've got The Laughing Monster, The Stars at Noon, these sort of Graham Greene meets Malcolm Lowry kind of like Cold War sort of... uh, (laughs) Sort of feel. And then you've got these ones about these kind of losers and loners and broken people in America mm. which is stuff like Resuscitation of a Hangman Tree of Smoke kind of unites them both because you've got mm. Bill Houston and his brother Bill Houston is a character in Dennis Johnson's first novel Angels uh, so it sort of loops back to that um, the thing governing it all which it kind of would, would be remiss of us not to miss is is religion I mean he was he was a Catholic convert and one of the reasons he didn't do many interviews is he kind of got tired of being asked about his religious beliefs um, and he doesn't like proselytizing. I don't think he liked that idea of he was trying to put Christian ideas. In. And it's a very strange relationship he had with it. I mean, Resuscitation of a Hangman begins with a failed suicide asking for absolution from a priest and ends with him in drag trying to assassinate a bishop from a rowing boat. Uh, so <laughs> He's great at, at last-minute reprise. This brilliant opening of Train Dreams where they're, they're trying yeah, to execute yeah. the, the, mm. chi- the Chinaman. Yes, it's just wonderful. a... Yeah. 
bravura yeah. piece of prose in storytelling. But I think when I first read Jesus' Son, because I was this freshly minted atheist, I kind of read all the religious references as uh, from a cynical sort of viewpoint. I thought, well, this is irony. This yeah. isn't like, because a writer yeah, yeah. I love is like, they're not going to think like that. But it was really, he did believe, I mean, he believed in like salvation or sort of, you know, like, fuckhead is not a nice person. He, elbows a girlfriend in the stomach yeah. he talks about uh, potentially raping a woman he's at one at the end of two men is a very ambiguous ending yeah, yeah. is he going to hit her is he going to yeah. rape her what's yeah. he going to do like there's some really dark stuff in there that he's kind of in the process of working out in the course of the book but he is sort of someone who that Johnson is I think interested in because there's a possibility of salvation or that everyone has this possibility of salvation hey Erica you know you were saying that you thought the pull quote on the cover of Jesus' son it was no good they should have used this one. This is Nathan Englander. Have you heard this quote? No. If you're only going to read one book this year about getting stabbed in the eye and crushing tiny helpless <laughs> bunnies, then I'd run right out and get Dennis Johnson's <laughs> Jesus. Uh, that's, that's the that's one. What, you want. what about the female um, characters in the book? How did you feel about that? I'm asking. I can ask anyone around the table. But I'm looking, looking at Erica. I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you. <laughs> don't, don't be other in. You know? I. I think, and maybe you mentioned this, one of you mentioned this on at the beginning of our discussion, I think, in a sense, it's all one voice to me. I think there's an amazing sort of fluidity between the characters. You know that yeah. Fuckhead is the central character and narrating voice, but there isn't a huge amount of distinction between any of the other characters, mm. which when you say it like that, Sounds Doesn't, like a fault. Sounds yeah. like a fault. Yeah. But because the overarching sensibility is to put you into this perceptual world, mm. which is very narrow, I don't think that's a problem. I mean, weirdly, would you think I would mention Dennis Johnson and Julian Barnes in the same breath? Perhaps not. Um, but I just read uh, his new novel, which is called The Only Story. And the first time I read it, I really didn't like it for just that reason. It's about a love affair between mm-hmm. a man and a woman. He's recalling this obsessive love affair. And I thought, where's the woman? I'm not hearing mm-hmm. from her mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. She's basically absent and then when I read it again I thought of course she is of course she is because this is obsession obsessive love isn't real love it is obsession and Mm. I suppose I feel the same thing in in this book about any of the other voices really well I think it's kind of his self-obsession as well because I think this is a sort of addict's memoir yeah. it's yeah. almost like a sort of 12 step thing when you're telling stories mm. about your own life yeah. but you, they, that is a kind of self-obsessed by its very nature because it's first person narration he's all, he really only um, talks tenderly about women when they're dead like his wife Michelle yeah. um, who dies of a, a drug overdose that's the only time that he's kind of he, he when he's with her and she's alive he's being horrendous to her he said I like Fuckhead's voice I liked, I liked it the minute I heard it and I enjoy its doubleness he seems to be immersed in his era and then also looking back on it from years afterwards. 
But that's all I can tell you about that. <laughs> I, 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 and also, Erica, confirming what listeners will, uh, will know, you have to read every book twice. Yes. <laughs> because because yes. once won't If they're do any it. good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If, if they're, they're any, any good. good. Yeah. You know, so you talked about... Uh, who was it who said he was the writer's writer's writer? Jeffrey Eugenides. <laughs> OK, so he's the writer's writer's writer. The, Adam Folds wrote a, a piece in the FT at the weekend about Dennis Johnson, and he ends the piece by quoting a paragraph from the new collection. And I'm just going to read that mm, now. About writing. Yeah, about writing. This is incredible. And also because Johnson taught creative writing, didn't he? He did. And yeah. he also uh, learned, because you said, creative writing uh, under Raymond Carver. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yeah. So, so this is from... I don't know the, the story, but this it's is from... From a triumph over the grave, actually. Is it? Yeah. OK, great. Yeah. Writing. It's easy work. You make your own hours... Mess around the house in your pyjamas, listening to jazz recordings and sipping coffee while another day makes its escape. Bouts of poverty come along, anxiety, shocking debt, but nothing lasts forever. I've gone from rags to riches and back again, and more than once. Whatever happens to you, you put it on a page, work it into a shape, cast it in a light. It's not much different, really, from filming a parade of clouds across the sky and calling it a movie, although it has to be admitted that the clouds can descend, take you up, carry you to all kinds of places, some of them terrible, and you don't get back from where you came from for years and years. (laughs) (laughs) So brilliant. I'm going to read more. Dennis Johnson, that's my my New Year's resolution. Well, I would... I would like, also, true, true, I would like no to say, not only, do you have to read, not only do you have to read books twice, of course you've got to finish books. Tree of Smoke, I, I, at the 300-page yeah, mark, I was thinking, well, I sort of get this, I've seen Apocalypse Now, I've seen The Deer Hunter, and I get this, the final 200 pages, the first 400 pages of The Slow Burns, the last 200 pages are as good as anything I've read in, since we started doing this. Just incredible. And not my sort of book at all, that mm. very male epic guys chomping on cigars at one another. Like I do like Call the Midwife. I do like Call the Midwife. We're hitting every really target. It's an important thing because I think that, you know, sometimes if you talk about the beats, that there's a sort of macho... This is not, Johnson is not that. No. Well, I, I love it, I'm not going to read it, but the, the, he was as influenced by Whitman as anybody. Mm. So mm. there is a kind of rhapsodic... And I think that's what I love most about that, this, this, this particular collection, and that, although it's there in, in, in train, train Jeans as well. Well, I think... Thank you for, to, to Chris and to Erica for, your, for sort of tag-teaming us on, on Dennis Johnson. It's a, I feel sort of ashamed that I haven't... Yeah. As often... In, in well, it's quite... That but also it's interesting that he isn't... That he isn't better... It's a classic writer's yeah, why, writer curse. Why, why it's like James he, Salter, you know. Yeah, yeah. He's another writer's writer who does not have a big constituency, but the people who, who love him really love his work and are inspired by it. Mm. Uh, I picked Johnson over Salter, I have to say. <gasps> Yeah, me too. Yeah, you know, it's controversial. <laughs> no, maybe not so controversial. No. Um, <laughs> oh, well, unfortunately, that seems as good a point as any at which to stop. Um, thanks to Chris and to Erica and to our producers, the brilliant Nicky Birch and Matt Hall. And thanks once again to our sponsor, Unbound. You can find us online, Twitter, Backlisted Pod, Facebook, uh, Backlisted Pod, and on our page on the Unbound site, which is boundless, uh, www. 
unbound.com forward slash boundless forward slash boundless or whatever just go on there anyway thanks for listening we'll be Google it Yeah, we'll be back with another show in a fortnight until then wait 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 though we have to say you just mentioned their producers our producers Nikki Birch and Matt Hall we have to make an announcement everybody Matt asked me not to do this earlier and Nikki can edit this out later if she wants to but we want to say that Matt is this is our last show with Matt as Producer, which we're very, uh, very George Martin about. is leaving us and being replaced by Phil Spector. No, I don't know. That's probably that's probably not too propitious, is it? But anyway, um, Matt has decided. Matt, Matt has got a day job and so won't be able to look after us. But so much of the success of Batlisted has been down to Matt, and he has been a brilliant producer. And we have been incredibly lucky to uh, have him. But you don't know that because I'm the only one you've had. <laughs> yeah. But also, it's time for you, like Peter Capaldi, for you to regenerate into uh, a controversial female producer. Uh, so we'll be back in a fortnight with, with um, Nikki at the helm. With Nikki at the helm. Well, it's producer. important to say about Matt. We would, it would, this podcast would not have existed without him. Without yeah. his. I think I seem to remember it was some sort of weird Thai restaurant that we were in. Uh, well, we managed to persuade him to, to actually take us on as a yeah. with a half baked idea, and here it is, slightly less half baked. What did we do? <laughs> okay, that's it. Thank you. Bye, Matt. D- don't call. <laughs> <laughs> If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.